Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today, oh wow, I have an amazing episode to share with you. I just had a conversation with Dr. Emery Brown. He has done so many things in the field of medicine and science that I am simply going to read to you his beginning of his Wikipedia page. That's how long his credentials are. Emery Brown is an American statistician, neuroscientist, and anesthesiologist. He's the Warren M. Zeppel Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and at Mass General Hospital, and a practicing anesthesiologist at Mass General Hospital. At MIT, he is the Edward Hood Taplin Professor of Medical Engineering and Professor of Computational Neuroscience, the Associate Director of the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science, and the Director of Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology Program. Brown is one of only 19 individuals who has been elected to all three branches of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Brown is also the first African-American and first anesthesiologist to be elected to all three national academies. I can tell you the information we talked about on this episode was mind-blowing. I never thought uh, anesthesiology would be, one, so interesting, and two, have such uh, great ripple effects on the rest of uh, neuroscience and, and just medical science in general. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode and I'm looking forward to seeing Emery's work expand in the future. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Dr. Emery Brown. Emery, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It's it's a real honor to have you on. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So I'm super curious about so much of the work that you're doing, and you're involved in such a wide variety of fields. I'm curious if you could retrace for us uh, briefly your sort of your career trajectory and how you got involved with mm -hmm. such a range of, of subjects. Okay. Well, so I'll I'll start in college. So in college, I I came to college. I was an undergraduate at Harvard. I came to college with the idea of studying Romance languages, and then wow. in my sophomore year, um, because that's what that's what I was you know really good at when I came to when I came to Harvard. I was very very good in French and very good in Spanish, and I knew I wanted to go to medical school. And I thought that um, I would eventually find myself doing work with like the World Health Organization or something like Médecins Sans Frontières or something like that. And um, so, but I took uh, an economics course and uh, I realized that um, statistics was really, really important. I just fell in love with it. And I decided that I really wanted to become proficient in statistics. So I switched my concentration my junior year to applied mathematics. And I, um, you know, had to take three courses each of my last two semesters to complete the major. I knew I needed more mathematics to really think about seriously doing a PhD in statistics along with an MD. 
and I still had this itch to scratch in terms of Romance languages. So I spent time. I went to France after I graduated. I went to the Fourier Institute, Fourier Institute in Grenoble, and studied math and also, you know, buffed up on my French. Such so that when I came back to Harvard to do the MD PhD program, I was able to. I, I decided I was going to pursue my PhD in statistics, and that's what I did. So I did the MD PhD program, MD and at, at Harvard Medical School, PhD in statistics at the Harvard Statistics Department. And um, at the time, I was working on circadian rhythms, which is a field of neuroscience because it's part of the internal biological clock. And we were doing a lot of work on studying the human circadian system. And after I finished my PhD, I did my internship in internal medicine. I decided I wanted to go into anesthesiology. So I did my residency in anesthesiology at Mass General. And my research in circadian rhythms didn't match up necessarily with my clinical practice of anesthesiology. They were quite separate. I was had a career developing signal processing algorithms to study circadian rhythms initially. And then uh, I was practicing as an anesthesiologist for training and then eventually practicing as an anesthesiologist. Well, um, I focused my statistical research on developing algorithms and methods for analyzing neuroscience data. And the more I interacted with neuroscientists, developing algorithms and for, their, for analyzing their data and also understanding just how they thought about the problems in neuroscience, I realized that there was a big opportunity that was being missed as far as anesthesiology was concerned. We weren't studying anesthesia as a neuroscience problem. It was being treated as a problem in pharmacology. So I decided to take on studying the problem of how does anesthesia work using paradigms from, from systems, systems neuroscience. And that was, that's what sort of got me into thinking about how does anesthesia work? And then from there, trying to design experiments in humans and non-human primates in, in rodents to actually investigate the question. And so that's where we, that's where I am, you know, today, sort of studying those questions, still practicing as an anesthesiologist. And it turns out because the EEG is so central to Looking at the brain under anesthesia, my signal processing statistics training turned out to be a real, a real plus. It turned out to be a real asset because we we're able to characterize the develop characterizations of the signals from the different. It's really awesome. I'm curious, uh, in the field of anesthesiology, sort of where do you see sort of some of the potential ripple effects going to with the study of that and learning more about the different uh, effects it has on on our minds when we're unconscious or on our memory. I, I think it pervades everything. So let's let, let's start with just anesthesia. So if we understand better how anesthesia works, then we can make it safer for patients. So we can make sure the person has enough anesthesia so they're adequately anesthetized, and we can make sure that they don't have too little so that they don't have a situation where they're aware under anesthesia and the anesthesiologist, you know, doesn't administer it. That doesn't, sorry, doesn't, uh, doesn't appreciate it. And, and then from there, there's so much, there's so many ways in which that the, the way anesthesia is done can be improved from better monitoring. Like for example, using the EEG to monitor the brain and patients under anesthesia, adapting the protocols so that we have better management of pain during anesthesia and then afterwards, helping to people to wake up 
better with clearer heads so their brain, they don't have brain dysfunction, you know, after, after anesthesia and surgery. And once we, and then also coming up with ways that we maybe get, we may be able to get intelligent systems to help us deliver anesthesia. If we can, you know, the anesthesiologist watches second by second and it doses the drugs accordingly. But, you know, maybe we can develop some monitoring paradigms where computers can help us with that a bit. So once we understand how the drugs are working, and that's something which we've gained a lot of insight into over the last several years, it opens up all these possibilities for like changing the field. As long as we keep it as a black box, we can go, oh, we don't know how anesthesia works. Then what that means is we're reluctant to try new things because we, we literally we don't know where to go. So I, I see a lot of possibilities there. So that's just within anesthesiology. And then from there, as we understand the neuroscience of anesthesia better, we can relate to other problems in clinical neuroscience. So for example, as you may have heard, some of our anesthetic drugs are being used in a wide range of, 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 for different problems. So like ketamine is used to now treat very severe depression. It's a very important pain medication. And also it's a very important model for studying, you know, studying schizophrenia. So as we start to understand better the neuroscience of how anesthesia works, we can improve anesthesia, but we can also contribute to other problems in clinical neuroscience and have those problems contribute to anesthesia as well. Wow. I'm curious at all if you've ever considered, uh, you know, the future of anesthesia, you know, turning into some sort of like matrix, matrix like uh, situation where we understand the body to that level where we can, uh, you know, sort of keep it on ice and, you know, understand what's going on neurologically at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not inconceivable. I mean, you know, um, we, we have a lot more to learn, but, you know, there are hints that things like that are possible. We get little look-sees into, into, you know, those sorts of situations, you know, every now and then. Um, and some of it comes, you know, not necessarily from things like anesthesia, but when you think of things like meditation and people who can place themselves in very, very deep trances and have this amazing control over their, their mind states and their physiology at the same time. You know, if we study that and we learn how to harness that, maybe that's a safer way, something along those lines would be a safer way to anesthetize someone. And certainly, um, perhaps with fewer side effects, certainly the, you know, the the drug side effects, you know, being minimized. So I, I think, uh, I think something like that is, is very, very possible. Well, will it be here tomorrow? No, I don't think so. But you know, at, at some point in the not too distant future. The next area that I'm really curious about is how you uh, were able to decipher brainwaves. Is that accurate? Right, right. So, so that turned out to be, um, that, that turned out to be, let's say, like a two-stage process. So when I got interested in really studying anesthesiology seriously from a research standpoint, I, um, the first thing I did was just make some simple observations. First of all, the drugs were known to bind to certain receptors. That had been documented. That's an idea that had been in the literature for um, you know, nearly 30 years. So in other words, a drug like propofol, let's say our most used anesthetic, binds to certain types of receptors, 
And then when it does that, if you give enough of it, you start to see effects like someone lose consciousness. Then the question became, just knowing the receptors to which the drugs bind doesn't really tell you how you become unconscious. So for that, you have to look at the anatomy of how the various parts of the brain are wired. And you see that there, there, there are two things that you can start to appreciate. One is that there are places in the brain, let's say in the brainstem, the lower part of the brain, where when these drugs bind, they'll actually turn off what we call the arousal systems. The arousal systems are these projections or pathways which come up from the brainstem, the lower part of the brain, and they basically keep us awake. So when the drugs bind at these targets, these inhibitory sites in the brainstem, and they do that because that's, where, that's one of the major sites where these receptors are located, you can easily see right away why someone will become unconscious because it's essentially turning off these excitatory inputs that are going up to the main part of the brain, like <coughs> the cerebrum and those areas in the thalamus, for example. But then the other thing that you, that, you, that, you, so, that you observe is that you see oscillations. And the oscillations are very systematic. You give the drug, the oscillations come on in a very organized way. They're highly structured. They change systematically with drug dose, and they change systematically with patient age. And so this wasn't an epiphenomenon. It seems like every time you gave the drugs, this is what we, you know, this is what you see. And what we came to appreciate was that because these oscillations are quite different from the ones, let's say, that you and I have going on in our brains right now as we communicate, they actually disrupt the ability of the various parts of the brain to communicate. So, and here's an analogy. Like I'm talking to you now and you can hear my voice and you know, there's some high tones in my voice, there's some low tones and I'm modulating, you know, the air which is coming out of my lungs in order to convey information to you, right? Right. So now if what I did was you said, all right, Emory, I want you to give me the same you know, let, let's have the same conversation. But what I want you to do is you get to have one frequency and you can modulate the size of that frequency, but you have to stay at that same frequency. Then what? Then everything I'm saying now would go, because right now I'm using multiple frequencies and I'm modulating, modulating them to different degrees, it would, trend, it, would trend, it would go from what I'm saying now to something like, so it's just one single frequency and I'm changing just the amplitude of that. So that's physically like what's happening in the brain. These oscillations are occurring. And just like there was no information in what I just said to you, there's no information when these large oscillations, there's no ability of the parts of the brain to communicate. As long as you keep the drugs there, you have like this kind of hum, if you would, going on. When you take the drugs away, the hum disappears, and wow. and, and that's that's what that that seems to be one of the primary ways in which the drugs are working. Yes, uh, I'm curious. Are you able to get any information out of those? Uh, oh yes, you you get a tremendous amount of information out of them because so for example, if based on the size and the structure of the oscillations, I can tell how unconscious you are. 
and 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 so that's something which that's important information for the anesthesiologist to know because then he or she knows whether he needs to give more or less anesthetic to the person to make sure that they're adequately anesthetized. And then the other thing is that because the, the, the oscillations differ for, for different drug classes. So just to make the point, I talked about ketamine, like our most used anesthetic is propofol. The oscillations from ketamine look completely different than the oscillations from, excuse me, the oscillation from propofol look completely different than the oscillation from ketamine because they have different mechanisms and different areas in the brain where they bind. So they create, they create sort of, they impair communication within the brain circuits differently. And then the other thing that you can start to see is they change systematically with age. So as we get older, the amplitude of our oscillations gets to be less and less because our neurons, our circuits are older and they don't respond to the stimulus the same way. So one of the things to appreciate about that is that you need much less anesthesia to much less uh, lower doses of the anesthetic drugs, even more than I think what we currently might even imagine right now to make sure that someone who's older, older, let's say 55, 60 years of age, so beginning there and above, is well anesthetized. So it changes dramatically how you might dose your drugs for people in that age category. And this is one of, this is the age category where people have a lot of uh, brain dysfunction or difficulties after after anesthesia and surgery. Systematic oscillations are occurring between different areas of the brain. Yeah, exactly. What they are, there are so like right now, if we put EEG on on you and me, we would see oscillations, and you know, we would see oscillations in our brain circuits, and they would tend to be fairly high frequency, let's say above about 30 cycles per second, 30 to maybe 40 cycles per second. And they would be very small amplitude. And these are what we call gamma oscillations. And just to put some numbers on it, let's say they would be about five microvolts, five. Let's just think of it as, as they'd be about five. If you as you gave someone anesthesia, an adult, the amplitude of oscillations, the frequency would shift. So it would move from being at about 30 to 40 cycles per second. It would shift down to maybe sort of two, two ranges. It would be maybe about one to four cycles per second, and then at about, about eight to 12 cycles per second. So a, a very broad change in frequencies, very broad change. And then in addition to the frequency range changing, the amplitudes would get to be very large. So they go from five to between 20 to 50 in terms of microvolts. So they become much larger. And in kids, they are enormous. They can be as large as a thousand microvolts. So they're, they're huge. So, so, and so th what that is, is those are ions in the brain, which are currents in the cortex that are basically circulating. There, and so these, this flow of these, of these uh, in these circuits, these, these currents are, is greatly exaggerated and controlled by the anesthetic drugs so that they're not flowing the way they normally would when you're conscious, so they contribute to you being unconscious. They, they basically, the drugs essentially hijack your brain waves. That's, a, that's an amazing idea, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking now about you know sort of some of the 
side effects of, of that kind of research and understanding that kind of stuff and, and what well, that can do moving forward. Well, that's it. I mean, that's uh, side effects is really the key because see that process, right, is not natural. Okay. You, you don't normally have oscillations generated that way that you produce yourself in the course of a day just doing your normal daily activities. So once you realize that, you can understand why when you turn the anesthetic off, it may take a while for those effects to subside. And in people whose brains might be vulnerable, either people who are older, people who are quite sick, maybe young kids, you can easily see why they may have brain dysfunction after anesthesia because the oscillations or the effects of the oscillations persist once you, even after you've stopped administering the drug. Wow. So, so it gives us insight not only into how the drugs are working, but why the drugs may be producing you know, these side effects like brain dysfunction after anesthesia, where which could last for a few hours or just a few minutes, or in some cases, maybe go on for several weeks or months in, some, in certain situations. And, and so these are the sorts of things where once we start to understand how the drugs are working, we can start asking questions, can we do this better? Can, can we do this better? Can we come up with alternatives that will be far more like I was saying, physiologic, physiologically sound, achieve the same state, but with less likelihood of these types of cognitive side effects. Wow, so some people are side effects for months after anesthesia? Yeah, and the one that you might have heard, you may have heard the most about is after open heart surgery. I don't know if you, because there's a, um, because one of the things that happens on open heart surgery is for a period, the blood circulates outside the body in an oxygenator. And it's believed that in addition to just being under anesthesia, just that process itself tends to contribute to, you know, brain dysfunction. But so that's where I think that was one of the most obvious cases, which has been talked about for years. But more commonly now, what we see is just with general surgeries, so um, people over 60 years of age, a quarter of them will have some sort of delirium after anesthesia. And you know, coming up with ways to try to mitigate this is an active area of investigation and, and clinical trial at this point in time in anesthesiology. What are the main challenges for this field to learn more about this to avoid such such you know long lasting effects? I, I think it's conceptually simple. I think that conceptually it's just the following. Um, see, we're happy that we have anesthesia because I mean it has really changed medicine. I mean, literally, it transforms surgery overnight from being butchery and trauma to being a um, a humane, safe, and many times life-saving therapy. So we're glad we have it because it's, you know, it, it's really, it's really advanced medicine. But now I think it's time to ask a different question, which is, now that we know what we'd like anesthesia to be, how can we now build it from first principles? So if you look at what happened, we found drugs that could put people in a state so that we could operate on them. And now we've gone through the process of studying what 
how that state is produced, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And so what we should do is say, okay, here's the state I want. Let me build some approaches that allow me to generate that state in the most physiologically sound way with as few side effects as possible. So we have to change our approach, not just looking at how the current drugs work, but deciding how we want to build the process going forward. What kind of, what would be the ideal uh, process in your mind going forward? So here's the ideal process. So a patient comes in to have surgery. We're having a very coherent conversation. Um, I place them in a state of anesthesia in which they are, the, the person is unconscious. The person is feeling, you know, there's no pain processing. They're not moving so the surgeons can operate. Um, there's no likelihood that they're going to form any memories and they're physiologically stable. Heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, respiration, they're all perfectly controlled. They have a major incision, but nevertheless, when they wake up, I turn off my agents. They come to with a very, very clear head. We pick up the conversation right where we left off. And most importantly, even though they've had this major insult, this surgical insult, they are perfectly comfortable. That's what it should be like. Because all of us who practice, anest who practice uh, anesthesiology have had that happen to some degree you know, at some point in time. And I think that should be the goal for our research and our clinical practice. And I think none of us should really feel like we've done our job until we are able to create that for every patient. Yeah, that sounds better than having effects for months after the fact. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm curious how both the fields we've talked about that you're deeply involved in, how those relate to the other field you're in, which is medical engineering. Well, so one of the things that we're thinking about is um, coming up with a way to, let's say, monitor the brain better under anesthesia. So we've worked very, very hard to develop algorithms that allow us to read the EEG in real time. So that, that, that's, a, that's a good amount of engineering, if you will. It's a good amount of signal processing. And, and as I was saying earlier, once you're able to read those signals and you can display them, we're trying to teach anesthesiologists how to interpret them properly so they'll know what someone is or is not you know, appropriately anesthetized. And then from there, the, you know, the engineering aspects of it lead to developing systems where I said maybe computers could help us dose the anesthetic drugs in real time, particularly when we have like very long cases, you know, a case that might, we know is going to last for more than three or four hours, or like, in, or like in the intensive care unit where patients receive anesthesia uh, at varying doses to keep them, keep them sedated. So the way to think about it is aviation, was, aviation advanced dramatically once the autopilot was designed and implemented. And it's very clear that for some of the things that we do, having kind of an autopilot which would pay very close attention to the anesthetic state of the patient and help us dose the drugs might be one way of helping to mitigate some of these you know, undesirable side effects afterwards. 
and you know make sure that checking on a second to second basis that the patient received no more no less anesthesia than he or she needed i see so, so that's 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 like you know very challenging quite interesting engineering yeah that's that's uh super interesting curious like where that can lead to down the road as far as you know if you are able to administer the exact right amount of anesthesia for a patient and understanding using computers to interface with you know the the person under anesthesia how that can eventually lead to uh different sort of computer calibrated regulation of other systems like you know a person's endocrine system to keep their mood regulated or keep their uh you know happiness levels up do you see anything uh yeah I think that's a I think that's a great extrapolation because you know in that regard um, in that regard it's all about homeostasis you know keeping physiologic systems within the range that they need them to be and now while anesthesiology at least in general anesthesia as we practice it now is not a it, it's not physiologic homeostasis we do want to put the body in, into the state which we want to control. So I think it's like kind of the order zero problem to solve to get at some of these more complex situations which we would like to control. Because you know maybe there's something which we could measure in real time and understand what your mood was. I mean, maybe it's not just a single neurotransmitter, a single hormone, but maybe it's the levels of certain ones of them. And then depending upon how that fluctuated, then in real time, administer the hormone or the neurotransmitter or something else which would alter the mood and you know reset you and put you back you know where you needed to be so i think if ever there were a starting point for embarking on personalized medicine i think anesthesiology is it because if there's one time that you want your care to be personalized it's certainly when you're having surgery you don't want the on average dosing of the drugs you want the dosing of the drugs which is perfectly tailored to you know, your needs, your physiology, and the type of surgery that you're having. So I think if we're able to solve this and really try to exploit this idea of homeostasis and doing that in, in that design, I think that experience is going to offer a lot of insights to other areas of medicine where certain or similar problems, but probably more complex problems are being undertaken. It seems like uh, anesthesiology is affecting the, you mentioned like the brain stem, the basic part of the brain. It could mm -hmm. lead to uh, advances in areas that affect the emotional area of the brain and like mood regulation. And then to, like the next layer to that is, is things like what Elon Musk talks about with the neural lace and interfacing with our uh, frontal cortex. You see sort of the work that you're doing in anesthesiology sort of somehow getting to a place to impact that kind of science as well. I, I do. I do because, you know, so I have the good fortune to work with, uh, a number of my colleagues in neurology, like Brian Edlow, is looking at the question of uh, he's he's trying to come up with you know novel strategies to to enhance recovery from coma, and uh, so if you think about it, anesthesia is a drug-induced reversible coma. So every time someone has general anesthesia to have surgery, we place them in a, in a in a state of coma which we have to reverse, and you know, maybe if we studied ways to turn the brain on after anesthesia, that could be like a test bed for helping him figure out ways that he could, you know, help reactivate or reanimate the brains of patients that have had brain injuries or this sort of thing. 
So I, I think they, they connect up you know, very, very uh, directly. And also, to the extent that we're able to have people come to and not have their circuits be dysfunctional, I mean, a large and a good part of that involves the, you know, the frontal cortex, the area which is important for thinking and reasoning. So if we have a good sense of what that activity should look like when it's normal, then when we take it away under anesthesia and we put it back, and we have an idea that we can have a measure of whether or not we've put it back the right way of helping it reinitiate the right way, that's going to be very, very helpful to people who are studying, you know, dysfunctions and cognition in other domains as well. So it, it connects up directly because, you know, as anesthesiologists, you know, we are indeed whole body physiologists. We have to worry about all the organ systems and most importantly, the brain. And I think up until now, we haven't obsessed about the brain and really taken the license to study the brain and think about controlling it in the way that we should have. But I think as we do that, that's really going to revolutionize, as I said earlier, not only the way we give anesthesia, but I think the impact that we're able to have on these other fields. In, in your estimate, how long are we in understanding the brain? Uh, I think certain parts of it, um, you know, we have good insights into, but it's kind of, it's kind of splotchy. You know, so there are certain areas that have been studied more than others. So let's say visual cortex has been studied more than, let's say, um, certain brainstem circuits, right? The lower parts of the brain. And, you know, part of that is just historical. Like those are areas that were worked on first. Like we know a lot about the hippocampus, um, the area of the brain, which is important for short-term memory formation because they're very nice you know, rodent models to, to study the hippocampus. Um, in, in contrast, you know, we know, you know, a, a lot less about certain parts of the emotional centers or how some of these centers, you know, relate to, to pain processing and this sort of thing. So there's kind of a mosaic of the amount of effort that's been put into different areas because, you know, some areas have been studied you have trended in some sense, and they've been studied more than others. But I think that with many of the tools that are being developed now that um, allow us to study, you know, some of the more remote parts of the brain, let's say like the brainstem and what have you, I think that's gonna, that's gonna change quite a bit. But the other thing you have to always keep in mind is that as you study these circuits or these systems or these parts of the brain in animal models, you have to really ask yourself to what extent is this a good approximation to the system in humans? And because I learned something about this level of processing in the rodent brain, does it really carry over directly? Or to what extent does it carry over directly to my understanding of, the, of how this processing would take, would take place in the human brain? I'm curious, have you, are you familiar with the work at all of, uh, I, I believe he works at MIT as well, Hugh Hare? Yeah, oh yeah, uh -huh, I am. Mm -hmm. Do, do you work uh, alongside him in any way? No, we haven't. Uh, I've been on a, a thesis committee or two of his, of his students, but, you know, I mean, so he's you know, doing some very innovative work, you know, looking to build better motor prostheses for, you know, for amputees and, and what have you. And, you know, really using sort of first principle 
biology, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and some, and more recently, um, more recently, some really cool um, optogenetic techniques. So, I mean, so that's really bringing kind of cutting edge science and engineering into the translational realm. Yeah, sort of like the work that both of you are doing in the sense of advancing, you know, our understanding of, of, you know, the functionality of our brains and how they relate to our bodies. And I just find it so fascinating to just consider the direction that we could be going in with, with, you know, your work continuing, you know, what we'll understand, you know, in another 10 or 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I it, it's a, it, it really is a, it really is very tantalizing to, to um, speculate on that. For example, um, you know, um, you know, I'd like to think we'll have the ideal anesthetic, you know, which as I described earlier, you know, perfect on off control, you know, you know, minimal to no, you know, to, to no side effects, you know, I perfect pain control, you know, following, you know, following surgery. And, you know, with those sorts of insights, because we understand how circuits are turned on and off. So, so this is why I think of anesthesia as the order zero problem. You're completely awake and then you go to a highly profound state of unconsciousness. Well, if I turned you on a little bit and I made you happy, maybe that's a way to treat depression. If I knew how to physiologically turn you off just a little, maybe that's a better way to make you sleep or help you sleep. So. I see all these problems, you know, which have some de degree of arousal, you know, disorders of arousal sort of as components of them, that if we are able to get this very fine control over how we generate the anesthetic state, we can solve some major problems on the way, which, are, which would help people in a number of areas of, uh, you know, of clinical neuroscience, you know, neuropsychiatric disorders, for example. So, so I think this is really why we have to take anesthesia, you know, seriously. It's not just to make it so you can tolerate a, a traumatic surgery, it really, really is a way, an underutilized way to study the brain. Did you expect yes. sort of, uh, you know, ripple effects of the study of uh, anesthesia, uh, anesthesia to when you initially joined the field? No, not really, because I can honestly tell you when I joined the field, when I, you know, when I decided I wanted to do anesthesia, I, I liked the idea of being an anesthesiologist because I liked the physiology. I like, you know, the types of interactions that as anesthesiologists have with patients. I like the, um, you know, the, um, the real-time thinking that we have to do. And I hadn't thought critically about, you know, how the drugs were working. That wasn't part of, uh, that wasn't part of my calculus. But I can honestly say I'm even more excited about the field now because the idea that I can give the drugs or maybe in the future, put, use some other process to put patients in a state so they can have surgery, which we, you know, that state we call, you know, general anesthesia. And I really understand what I'm doing. I'm not doing it as a black box. I mean, that is very, very exciting. That's really, really exciting. And, and, and I want to move anesthesiology away from this sort of kind of intellectual knee-jerk response where you'll often hear people say, oh, we give it, but we don't understand how it works. And that's just not good. Because... Yeah, I heard you say, um, sorry to interrupt, that, that 
they just started monitoring people under anesthesia just a couple decades ago, maybe back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah exactly. So physiologic monitoring came into, came into, uh, came in as a requirement, meaning heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, oxygen saturation, oxygen delivery, and the anesthetic gases. That came into as a requirement in the mid 80s. But right now, there is no requirement to monitor the brain, yet the drugs have their most profound effect in the brain and central nervous system. So that shows you just this kind of black box perspective that we've used all along. You just, you kind of approximate it, you guesstimate it, right? And what we've been pointing out is you can watch this in real time and see the state that someone is in if you know how to read the EEG. So that's why we're working so so fervently to try to teach anesthesiologists how to read this because they can, they're, they'll be far better informed and their patients will benefit, benefit as a consequence. So we would like to see the use of the EEG be on par as a way to monitor the brain, be on par with monitoring you know, you know, the other physiological variables. And arguably it is a key missing link at this point in our anesthesiology practice. Wow. So most of the effects are taking place in the brain and it was, and people are, it's still not widely required to measure that. It seems almost as, as archaic as, you know, uh, anesthesia was before any physical monitors, like, like you mentioned, you know, before anesthesia is just sort of uh, butchering. It, it kind of seems like that, which is kind of crazy. It, it, it really is. I mean, it, it, it really, really is. And there's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a sociological phenomenon because, and, and having done this myself, I know exactly the, you know, the mentality, you know, you can do this and not monitor the brain. However, once you do this, when you monitor the brain, the degree of subtlety and the degree of nuance that you're able to have as you dose your drugs and make inferences about the state of your patient are just far greater. But it's one of these things, if you've never done that or you don't do that as a matter of course, you can't appreciate the benefits of these insights if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious, how are these drugs uh, actually administered and does the, administrative, does the administration of the drugs change when you incorporate sort of the methods that you're talking about using a computer to like precisely guide the, the amount of drugs needed? So they're usually typically administered in two ways. One is you inhale them, so like the, um, so we still use ethers, we use ether derivatives. So those drugs are inhaled, they're delivered through like a breathing tube, which is placed you know, in the patient after you know, the patient is unconscious. And the other way is intravenously. And there's some things which we do, let's say, when you have regional anesthesia, you have a spinal and epidural or that sort of thing where things are injected locally. But let's say for the sake of this conversation, it's either intravenously or inhaled. So most of the control work, um, the computer-controlled systems are being developed on uh, intravenous drugs because it, they, it, it's much easier to um, update the dosing of those on a shorter time scale compared to the inhaled drugs. Gotcha. Have you found any parallels between your research uh, early on in circadian rhythm and sort of what we're talking about now with, uh, you know, regulating, you know, your, the, the body's 
current state? You know, have you found any sort of, uh, you know, useful information as far as understanding like an optimal way to, to tune your circadian rhythm? Well, I, uh, not so much in the physiological links, let's say like, you know, anesthetizing at one phase of your circadian cycle might be better or worse than another. Um, I can't say that I found those sorts of links, but what I have found is the methodology research carries over or carried over. So for example, we're working on oscillations. So their circadian rhythms are just oscillations which have appeared about 24 hours. So the insights that I got from studying oscillatory dynamics there, you know, I could translate them into techniques and approaches or certainly conceptual frameworks for thinking about the oscillations that I was seeing when patients were under anesthesia. So, so that, that turned out to have been a major, I mean, I never would have guessed that the work that I'd done on circadian rhythms and the training that I received in signal processing would have translated directly into developing techniques to take better care of patients in, in, uh, in an, under anesthesia. I, I had never conjectured that. So that, that's, a, that's a bit of very nice serendipity. It's amazing. Now, if only there's some sort of tie-in to romance languages, I think it'll come close. <laughs> well, the, the tie-in that I make at the moment is when I travel to Spanish-speaking countries, I give my lectures in Spanish, or when I was in France <laughs> last year, I gave, my lecture, I gave my lecture in French. So that's the tie-in at the moment. That's incredible. I love that. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you see as being, are there any sort of, potential breakthroughs on the horizon that you think that if x occurred you know it would 10x our understanding of the brain or neurology or is there anything that you're excited about potentially seeing in the next you know few years that could change things yeah i i I think i I think one of the main things is um that would help us in anesthesiology and just help you know i think um patients in general is control of the pain circuits that's a big problem i mean you know the biggest reason people come to the op come to the, the hospital is something hurts you know 50 50 to 55 percent of the chief complaint of someone uh, chief complaint of a patient coming to the hospital is something is uncomfortable or something hurts and so understanding how we can monitor the the pain system and also then more effectively treat it keep it from getting out of control to create chronic pain syndromes, that's going to have enormous impact across a wide range of medical, you know, medical specialties. And just very concretely, how can you measure pain? How can you measure pain in a way that is, that's objective and not subjective? Um, Very easy question to state, but a challenging question to address. So if we're able to make progress in, in our understanding of pain, our ability to treat pain, our ability to monitor pain, that's going to have enormous implications across many fields of medicine. Question so interesting about pain being objective versus subjective. It's, it's uh, interesting to think that, you know, you could injure yourself, but until you look down and see that you, you were injured, that you may not have even noticed the pain at all. But then after noticing it, you can, you can feel it intensely. Right. And, and interestingly enough, a bit of anesthesia history, one of the, the first people to study that phenomenon of like soldiers in the battlefield having exactly that such being exact in that exact circumstance was Henry Beecher. He was first chair of anesthesiology at Mass General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Wow. That's crazy. What, what are you currently working on as far as uh, like, like what's your 
what's what's an exciting project that that you're you know feeling excited about well it, i think the one one of the ones that excites me a lot right now is this whole idea of um it, it relates to what i was saying earlier about pain and that is um i've changed my practice in the last three years um i i I have the same drugs which were available to me, you know, three years ago. And what I do now is um, I use those same drugs, but I dose them differently. Because I realize that I can create a better anesthetic state by taking the same drugs and dosing them differently. And the, the insight is that what I should be doing is placing emphasis on controlling pain or what we call nociception during surgery. And so, and, and so what that means is you need anesthesia because it hurts, not that you need to be unconscious. In other words, unconscious is often a state we place you in because it would be uncomfortable to stay immobile for many hours while someone operates on you. The main thing you need to do is, under, is control pain. And so we've worked on this idea of what we call multimodal anesthesia, where we use multiple different drugs, which have different mechanisms of action in the pain system, to actually control the pain during surgery. What happens with that is that it means that the drugs that we have to get, A, we get better control of pain, and we can do it, you know, not necessarily using opioids, or if we use opioids, use smaller amounts of opioids. But the pain is better control. In addition, these drugs also decrease arousal. They contribute to the person being unconscious. So then the other drugs that we would give to make you unconscious, we can give less of them. So those side effects I was talking about, you know, the oscillations persisting, they, because you're giving less, you have, you can achieve the same state with a, you, you achieve the same level of unconsciousness with, with the lower doses of the anesthetics. And as a consequence, we're able to wake people up, wake patients up, you know, um, much more alert and what have you. And I feel like this is, for me, this is an important conceptual change in, in what I was doing, so much so that we wrote this up last, uh, last November and published you know, this idea. It's called Multimodal Anesthesia Theory and Practice. And it translates directly into me doing something quite different because of the neuroscience insights that I've gained. And I think it's a way that we can make patients benefit uh, directly from that. So that, I, that's very, very exciting because that's going from like, you know, the theoretical to the practical in a very short time span. The concept of that customized medicine, use, you know, using multiple drugs that, that when working together can create a, a better effect than, you know, one just blindly given uh, right. anesthetic on its own. Do you see, uh, or have you considered like the future with, you know, using AI and in, in medical, you know, like the diagnosing of drugs? Um, I, I think there's a role for AI. I, I think, uh, I, I think that, um, so, and so we're, we're, we're at kind of this very interesting juncture as far as anesthesiology is concerned. Um, AI has come into play, and it certainly has a role. It can play a role in a lot of areas. But anesthesia is also kind of this very, very young feel where we haven't done as much physiology as maybe we should have, certainly neurophysiology as we should have, to understand better 
how to think about anesthesia and how to design new paradigms. And a lot of AI is, is it's, it's very effective, don't misunderstand me, and it's quite useful, but some of it is very black box. And if you remember what we talked about earlier, we're trying to move away from the black box in anesthesia practice, because there's a lot which we could have known 20 years ago that we, we didn't learn, and so we should try to make up that time very, very quickly. So I think we wanna think very, very judiciously about how we introduce AI into the study of anesthesia. You wouldn't want someone just using an AI algorithm to figure out how unconscious you were if you could in fact understand the physiology of why the person was unconscious. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any uh, like books or resources that you'd point someone to who is really interested in learning more about this field or the, the impacts of this field and what you know, some of the, the ripple effects down the road could be? Any, any sort of books you, you commonly recommend in any of these areas we've talked about? Um, this is rather indirect. I mean, one of the ones which, which I like because it, it kind of gets at this idea of like what happens to you when you lose consciousness. It's a book by by, by, you know, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is, you know, the chief medical correspondent for CNN. He, he, he wrote a book a few years ago called Cheating Death. It, it's a very fascinating, it's a very, very fascinating book. It intersects to, to some extent with what we've been talking about because the whole idea of like, what does it mean to, you know, what does it mean to be really, what does it mean to be dead in different circumstances? In different circumstances, it means different things. Let me put it that way. Dead, you know, unconscious, you know, lifeless. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating book. And it, it touches on some of the things that we've been, that we've been talking about. You know, I, I think books which talk, I think the work that we're sort of doing now is mostly in article form. And, you know, I think, you know, we've done a few review articles. We just had a, we just had a, um, a review article come out in The Scientist um, a few weeks ago that kind of gives a lay version of our work. And I think, you know, I, I would recommend that to, you know, your listeners who are interested in getting a kind of a read on some of the things that we've been talking about here. I, I think the, the um, there, there are some interesting books on the, on the early history of anesthesia um, and, uh, you know, learning about the uh, sort of the whole ether, the, the whole process with, you know, ether and what have you. Um, but, but I think at the moment, um, so this modern era I think is being written. So the, the, the science and the, and the clinical practice is being undertaken. So we'll have to, make a swing through in another two or three years to try to write the books documenting it for the lay, for the lay public. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's usually difficult to prescribe people to check out the articles because uh, either they might misunderstand it, won't understand it, or, you know, if they do understand it, they probably already know about it. Right. But this article is written for the lay. It's written for the, the one in the scientist just a few weeks ago is written for the, for the lay audience. Fantastic. And we're, uh, you know, besides the scientists, is it available like on your website or anything like that? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, we can, it, I, I can, I can, I have a pointer to it on my website. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, well, th this is really awesome stuff. I, I know I'm going to have a lot of research to do on my own after this. You've really intrigued me. I, I, I can't help but, uh, 
you know, be concerned with the current state of anesthesia, hoping that more people uh, get on board with uh, monitoring the brain while they're doing it. You've sort of alarmed me in that way. Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's just like, it's like you're working on something, you just know it's the right thing to do. We just have to, we just have to keep pushing until it becomes a standard. Is there anything that the listeners can do to help move that forward? I, I think that asking the questions of their practitioners when they, you know, when they see them and, you know, having them explain, you know, why, why or why not, they don't, you know, they, they don't see it as being useful, I think would be, would be insightful because it's, the, it's, it's, it's an old, it's an old device, right? It's not a, and, and arguably it's one of the simplest sort of neuroscience devices around and the yield from using it is extremely high because the EEG signal under anesthesia is the strongest EEG signal that there is because there's no movement artifact. People who are anesthetized unconscious are not moving. So you get a very clean signal. It's high amplitude, like we talked about, you know, very, very strong, systematic. And it would just be interesting for, to hear practitioners explain to their, to their patients why they feel they can do an adequate job without it, given that there's all this, this information which is readily available. And we have training programs that anesthesiologists can use to, anesthesiologists can use to teach themselves how to you know, use the EEG. Now, to be fair to my anesthesiology colleagues, it does require a monitor that can display these signals the right way. You know, just any monitor you get doesn't, doesn't allow you to do that. So just to be fair. But I think moving our, moving our field in a direction where these sorts of monitors and every OR is where we want to be. I hope we get there in the, in the near future because that sounds super important. Um, I'm running out of time here, Emery, and I've been so grateful to, to ask you all these questions. I could ask you questions all day long, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I'm curious, do you have any final words you want to leave with the audience or listeners? Anything that you'd recommend for them? Any final asks or uh, requests for them? No, not really. Again, I, I want to thank you for taking the time because, you know, um, I, it's a real pleasure to talk about anesthesiology because, you know, it's not often, you know, more typically when anesthesiology is discussed in the lay press, it's in a situation where a patient has had awareness under anesthesia. And what people want to talk about is, oh, my God, you know, it's an alarmist type of presentation that even after almost 175 years, these guys still can't figure out when someone is unconscious under anesthesia. And that's a solved problem. And in fact, it's solved and we're ready to move into sort of far more, you know, far more in-depth thinking about anesthesia and the design of, you know, far, you know, far more personalized approaches to anesthesia. The key to that, though, is understanding the brain and the central nervous system, because that's where the drugs are acting. And one of the things that we're going to work on over the next few years is educating anesthesiologists and residents and other anesthesia caregivers, you know, to this point. And because it's such a, a young field in terms of neuroscience, I would submit that it's a very, it's a very interesting field for, I think, young people to consider for practice as well as for research because there's so much to be done. There clearly is so much to be done, and, and I, I'm 
grateful for all the work that you've done in this area. I, I truly believe after I stumbled on your work, uh, I truly, truly believe that what you're working on is going to have massive residual effects in the future. So thank you for what you do. And, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. I, I hope to see some major breakthroughs in that area. And I, I'm super excited to keep up with your work as you continue to, to produce new results. I really appreciate it, Patrick. Again, I, I, I can't, I can't overemphasize how grateful I am to you to, for giving me this time to talk about this work. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I'll see you, man. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.